Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, I am back from the Savannah Film Festival, and Kevin and I sit down with an exclusive interview with Hoyda Van Hoytema. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 285 of Real Blend, a podcast that talked the golden hour with Hoyda Van Hoytema. <laughs> Boy, was it exciting. Uh, my name is Sean O'Connell. I'm a managing editor at Cinema Blend and a co-host of the Road Blend podcast. And on this week's show, I am back from the SCAD Savannah Film Festival with a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, but most importantly, as referenced, we have an interview with cinematographer Hoyta Van Hoytema, who is Christopher Nolan's current mm. uh, right-hand man, uh, has worked on Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet, and the the... Most recent modern masterpiece, Oppenheimer, which Kevin and I slipped into and watched for about two hours and confirmed, yeah. confirmed to me, at least, that it, nothing should beat that that film at the at best picture. Like that thing should get picture director, actor, supporting actor, screenplay. Which two hours did you see the beginning, the last two hours or like some random three. two hours in the middle? <laughs> yeah. So we got in there. um, what was happening? The The scene that we walked in on was him coming home with Emily Blunt and the baby was crying yeah. and she was kind of upset. So it was still pretty early oh, on. They hadn't even yep. yet done the um, Manhattan Project. That's going to so be the da- first. Damon first had kind hour. of just shown up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. well, because we did 30 minutes with Hoyta and then they ushered us into the theater well, after that. So well, after you do the introductions, I, I want to talk about the behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, well, we yeah. will. Yeah, yeah. we're going to we get into, into all the, of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, looking handsome AF, as the kids say, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, How are you, sir? Handsome is definitely not a word that I would <laughs> I've ever thought of considering myself. But thank you for saying that. And uh, good welcome. to see you all three of you guys. So love you guys. Uh, Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jakey. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm very much accepting my role as a. Uh, a plus one uh, as an audience member on this week's episode because I, I didn't go to SCAD. I didn't I didn't take part in the interview. I haven't seen any of the movies coming out this week. So I think I'm just going to kick back and go. Yeah, this is great. This is great stuff, yeah. guys. Well, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to hear the story. Like, I kind of know the gist of it being a part of the, the, the text thread, but I'm excited to sort of hear what happened. And, and Daenerys is right here, too. Daenerys, you want to hear you Jake, too? You're just you're just a pretty face this week. It's really all I got. Dude, that's yeah. that's my life. Unless you can tell us. Can you tell us all about the movie that you just saw today? Uh, I can't. Dang. Oh, it's going to try, man. That's why, that's why I'm I asked kinda, beforehand. I'm kind of starving for details on that one. Yeah. Uh, I, Gabe Kovacs, you said you might see on. Jake. Hold What's on. Going I on might there? see, I might see Jake's pretty face uh, later this week. Yeah, baby. Yeah. It's coming mm. to Chicago. Coming to Chicago. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Someone's going to take me up on my comfortable fold out couch. I am checking my text messages for an invitation, but I don't seem to see one. So, uh, <laughs> and that was on purpose. Apparently, you guys have stuff going on. Uh, okay, so let's get into some housekeeping. Of course, if you're watching us on YouTube, hello, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, head down, give us a like and a subscribe. 
Join us here every single week on Friday mornings um, or sometimes it's Friday afternoon and evening, depending on where you're listening to us from. Uh, we have a global audience, which is incredible to hear uh, people from Australia and the Philippines and uh, all over that are weighing in and telling us where they've been listening to us. Of course, we're available all different places. You get your audio needs met. Um, and if you want to sign up for Roblen Premium, you can get an ad free version of the show and a newsletter from me every other week. Check the description uh, for wherever you're listening to the show right now for information on how you can do that. OK, so we want to get into uh, our interview for this week. And uh, as part of the Savannah, the SCAD Savannah Film Festival, which is a, a festival I've talked about a lot on this show. I go down every year to it. Um, we have been getting some interview opportunities in the last two or three years, probably that have been specific to Real Blend. Last year, we had Ron Howard on. Uh, one year we had Daniel Kaluuya, who was promoting um, Judah and the Black uh, Messiah. Yes, thank you very much. I was having a hard time remembering that. And then this year they offered time with um, Hoyda Van Hoytema. So what was interesting with SCAD this year is that they, in, in an absence of being able to bring in celebrities, they turned their attention to below the line uh, talent, which I thought was tr tremendous because it, you know, allowed other people to to really take the spotlight. And so they had a screening of Barbie and they honored the production designers. Um, they had a screening of uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse or across the Spider-Verse. And they brought in the three directors who we have had on the show and you guys definitely need to check out. And then they screened Oppenheimer uh, in addition to a lot of new titles that, that played as well, too. But they had a lot of these sort of retrospective screenings and, and then they brought in someone like for Oppenheimer, they brought in Hoyda Van Hoytema. And the moment that we got offered that, I had been pestering Kevin and was saying, like, dude, you need to come like yeah. I can handle that interview. And, and even you can feed me questions for it. But like you have to come to that interview. <laughs> uh, and and so finally, um, Kevin kind of realized, <laughs> yeah, I have to be in <laughs> that interview. And um, before, hopped on a plane right? and came down or the morning of the morning. Off. Sure. Yeah, I booked the flight at eight o'clock for a nine thirty flight a.m. Um, I do. So we are going to tell a little bit more of the backstory behind this interview on the other side of it. But there's something I do want to set up, which is really interesting. So we're in this movie theater called the Lucas Theater, which is and I, I hadn't I haven't been to Savannah since I was in high school. I just drove through it and I was in high school on a trip to Florida once. Um, and I remember a buddy of mine was obsessed with SCAD because it's a really it's a phenomenal school in terms of the arts and you know, Sean and I are just outside the theater hearing like college students talking about sound design. It was just really kind of a I just I was like, this is a place where I would love to just live and walk around <laughs> yeah, talking yeah. about filmmaking all the time. So um, I get there and I flew in literally that morning and we'll tell all that on the other side. But the interesting thing about how this interview was set up is we were in a green room in the theater. And what happened was Hoyda was getting an award and then introducing a 35 millimeter screening of Oppenheimer. Uh, not only was it, it was on film, which was so cool. And so Sean and I are in this break, this like green room. They're getting the audio equipment set up and shout out to the whole team at SCAD for getting those, that audio set up. They had a really nice setup for us. And we could hear the introduction and the crowd. Like you would think the Beatles were on stage, like when they announced Hoida. It was unbelievable. Um, and what was cool about it was so he does he goes up, he does his speech. They showed a little like sizzle reel of like apparently his movies. We could just we were trying to guess which movies they were based on the audio. And then Hoida comes in after his his, his getting his award and he sits down for the interview. And what's cool about it is the you could hear Oppenheimer playing behind yeah. him. Mm -hmm. So I knew where we were in the movie. So we were interviewing Hoida 
while I could hear Oppenheimer in the background playing to this audience on film while the director of photography is sitting within three feet of us. And we're about to break down this this movie that I've seen eight now nine times. So uh, it this is pretty surreal. And this is somebody that I've been following for a long time. Interstellar was probably the the awakening moment for me, but I was a big Wally Pfister fan. And you're going to hear a lot of that in this interview, because a lot of people try to compare Wally Pfister and Hoyta because Wally shot Memento from forward through before Interstellar. So this is a really cool thing uh, to get perspective from him and talk about Nope, her, her, let the right one in. So if you're oh, a fan yeah. and, and we, we talk about the swimming yeah. pool scene from let the oh. right one in. So just we enjoy this and, and we'll give a little more like about the backstory behind it. But I just want to set the tone of it. Just know mm-hmm. we're in a theater while Oppie's playing and we could hear it playing while we're talking to the guy who shot it. I just wanted to set that up. <laughs> and I want to give people a little heads up that because of the way that we shot it, we do not have video. This was not a traditional right. junket. So you're, it is an audio only on this one, but absolutely worth the listen. Uh, 30 minutes with a, a master of his field at this point right now, cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema uh, speaking to us on behalf of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. To have you on the show is really remarkable because I've been following your cinematography for years. We're in the Lucas Theater at the Film Festival here in Savannah. Mm-hmm. You just won an incredible award. Congratulations to you. Um, and thank, thank you for being you. on our show. Um, before I get into my first question, there was something I wanted to bring up to you when I saw the film first in 70 millimeter IMAX. There's a shot that I was curious if, if I'm projecting this or if I'm just reading into this, let me know. But it's in black and white and, and it's right when we're pushing out to go see Einstein by the water and Oppie's walking out. I think it's from Strauss's point of view at this point mm-hmm. in black and white. There's an obstruction in the left corner of the frame, almost like a tree that I was wondering if am I was right. Am I reading into that or seeing that in the wrong way? I was curious if that was meant to be there from a point of view of like, is it somebody's eyes looking at that 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 moment? Yeah, that might have been that it, that 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 shot is actually shot through a window. So so it's 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 shot from actually Einstein's office. That was that was uh, uh, the office that Einstein used to occupy in the institute uh, there 
But yeah, I, I, as you rightfully said, the um, uh, the black and white is very much uh, uh, the way we indicated Strauss's point of view in that film. Yeah. yeah. I just remember that I don't know, it looked like something was in the left corner. I was wondering if that was done on purpose. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, it had to feel like a point of view. And so we're mm-hmm. sh- shooting through windows, window panes, and mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, and there might be some mess left in the <laughs> junk left in the left side. No, I loved it. I thought it was cool. It actually made, it made me like it was more immersive almost. I was looking around the frame a little more. Mm-hmm. You made a lot of technical advancements uh, um, in, the, in the cinematography that you've done over the years. The day for night tech that you worked on on nope was remarkable Mm -hmm. and obviously uh with 65 millimeter imax black and white film here running the film backwards in tenant there's just different technical advances you've made when you're having a conversation with someone like a jordan peele or christopher nolan and you're and you need to make a technical advancement in order to serve the narrative how different are those conversations when you're talking to peele about let's advance day for night or let's let's 265 millimeter black and white imax film with nolan how different are those conversations when you're dealing with advancements in technology well, it usually doesn't start with an advancement. It's, it, it usually starts with an idea and it can be a very abstract idea or, you know, it, it can be as simple as, uh, you know, going out scouting at night and walking out of a car with Jordan and we're seeing the mountains around us uh, appearing as our pupils dilate, right, hmm. in, the, in, the, in the night. And we look at each other and really understanding that this is what we want. This is this is what we want to feel. This is what we want to see. But it's impossible because there is no cameras around that can do that. Mm. And um, and and so uh, the first reaction and 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 usually the first reaction of any director, right, is is like, okay, so that has to be CG or can we light it? And then I say, no, we can't really light it. It's it's an area that is you know, miles and miles <laughs> in every direction. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, usually I go, uh, I go, I go home and, you know, something like that just occupies my mind, you know, it, it, I can't stop sort of thinking how to solve that problem. And, and very often, you know, then technical solutions sort of uh, show themselves uh, in answer to sometimes very abstract uh, assignments that you, that you need to fulfill. And it happens the same with with Chris, you know, with Tenet, with uh, you know, what if we can run the the IMAX camera backwards? And what do you uh, mean by run the IMAX camera backwards? Like like the film is literally going through backwards and capturing it. Like is how is that? Yeah, happening? I mean the film is literally, <laughs> literally. running backwards through the camera, and capturing it in reverse, <laughs> capturing it in reverse. Oh sometimes. my god, that's insane! That's insane. <laughs> like 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 I don't think people realize how yeah. like like when the car is flipping in Tenant and we're going forward and that car flips in reverse. Yeah. Like is that what's happening there with the camp, the the film running? Well, through? yeah, yeah. The film is running, 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 running backwards. Uh, you know, when it really got complicated, is sometimes we have film uh, running backwards, uh, and certain people uh, playing forwards, uh, or actually acting backwards to appear forwards later, uh, and then we 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 again reverse the film uh, in the print. You know, there's a uh, there 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 uh, you know uh, uh, there's there there was always a lot of uh, layers uh, of uh, you know of achieving stuff like you know building cars that had steering wheels in the boots. You know, mm-hmm. so 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 they actually could drive backwards, but at the same time we would shoot 
it in reverse so that it actually appeared as cars driving very fast forwards just because other stuff that we then wanted to see backwards was more complicated. Okay. So there was there was a lot of layers in that film that were that were very much sort of fun uh, and very hard to crack, you know. It was it was like a a little, you know, um every day was like such a brain challenge, you know. Does Mr. Nolan storyboard? We kind of we kind of don't, mm. you know. Um, uh, the, the the biggest storyboards uh, or the times that that storyboards that we use storyboards were usually on sequences that were technically very, um, you know, um, involving for a lot of different departments. So, mm. uh, you know, where visual effects and special effects, uh, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, really needed to do very specific things, then we would storyboard, but. For the last two films, we haven't we haven't drawn you know a frame. However, for for instance, for Tenet, we had some sort of a storyboard. Andrew Jackson, our visual effects supervisor, made made for instance for the car chase, made some sort of a a map, you know, a a, a moving map of events, a kind of a bird's eye view of everything, just to work out where everything was laying in timelines. Okay. But, but you know, how we sort of block or break down a scene or how we make shots, that's something we don't do. That's something we figure out uh, as we're at it. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I, w- I would love for you to talk about the evolution of the IMAX camera. Uh, it's something that we try to emphasize to our audiences, um, going all the way back to Interstellar, uh, of how difficult the cameras were to work at the, at that time. Uh, and even getting into Dunkirk, we'd heard a story of an IMAX camera that, that went down into the water and you were able to retrieve mm-hmm. the film footage versus where you are with Oppenheimer now. And, and even where you hope to see the camera going in the next five years. Cause mm-hmm. I know that that technology is advancing. It seems pretty rapidly. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are advancing very rapidly around that camera as well. I mean, a camera is a very simple machine mm-hmm. in many ways. It's a it's a motor, and it's big film strips uh, that pulls those film strips through the gate, mm-hmm. and we expose light on it. So, 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 um, uh, sort of in principle, it's very simple. Uh, in the beginning, IMAX was very much used for vistas and for sh- the kind of documentary shoots where time was not really uh, as crucial as for instance on a film set where mm-hmm. you really you know you have so many people working there and you have to do a certain amount of shots during a day mm-hmm. so so the advancements are very much that, that you know that we sort of the, the the stuff we learned through the years has, has very much to do with how able is the crew to work with it as mm-hmm. well you know mm-hmm. how long are reloads taking and what can we do with our lenses and, you know, how much light do we need has, for instance, a lot to do with the lenses that we then develop. But very much, I, I see the camera very often as a sort of a Formula One car. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very specific piece of machinery okay. and it's, it, it, it's capable of doing things that other machines aren't capable of doing. Mm-hmm. But you have to service it. You have to take care of it. You have to, you have to everybody around it has to be totally in tune with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to have somebody that can put that camera apart and together and, you know, fix it in a spot, fix it on a beach in Dunkirk or, you know, in Amalfi or whatever, wherever you're shooting right. on the highway in uh, in Tallinn. Um, so it's very much the the capability of the people around that makes us able to work faster with it and, and to m- make it more like a normal, you know, b- b- camera that we can use on a feature film. Okay, okay. 
you know, my, but my, my take has always been like, you know, you have complicated technology, but for me as a cinematographer and, and as well as my crew, our job is to make that technology uh, or is actually to wrangle or control that technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we we don't want to make it ourselves easy or we don't want to be comfortable. We want to work with the, or we want to be able to work with the best equipment in order to create the best possible cinematic experience for mm. the for the viewer and sometimes it means that we have to go through trouble and through pain and you know we gladly take it yeah. because we love it you know it's amazing and i've said this before on our show the the moment cinematic immersion changed for me was the moment i saw wally fister and what uh, nolan did on the dark night watching you know jim in, in that 18 wheeler just flipping oh uh, yeah. jim Wheeler. and it's just one of those like was one of those moments that i i just remember my jaw dropping and then i go and then wally obviously continues on and then you jump in with yeah. interstellar and and uh Tenet and Dunkirk and I mean Chris and Wally on 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 Dark Knight. I mean they were the true pioneers because they literally, you know, blew dust off a camera that 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 was previously only used for like planet slow planet yeah. planet documentaries. Sure, and sure. they had to adapt it and and they had to have the sort of the guts to take that on a film set and actually expose film on it, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when I came in on Interstellar, you know, Chris yeah. had already done it once and he was like, uh, you know, he was already kind of like an expert on it. You know, he was <laughs> telling me kind of uh, what, what would work and what wouldn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but he really, uh, you know, uh, awoken in me this, uh, yeah, this, this, this will to, totally control and wrangle that piece of equipment it's oh, amazing shout out to jim wilkie by the way for people who are listening to this oh yeah he was he was in the 18 wheeler when it flipped he was in the plane and oh, tenant when the was. plane went into there um <laughs> i'm gonna jump back to from a not to a non-imax shot of yours because one of the things that i love about the filmmaking that you and mr nolan do is especially with Oppenheimer, you're dealing with a concept that is intimate yet epic at the same time. Mm. And you have these massive IMAX shots of mm. just Killian's face. Mm. And as we're watching it, we feel so intimately connected. Mm. Um, but going back to a shot in Interstellar, I know everyone talks about the McConaughey sequence when he's watching the footage of his kids growing up over all that time. Mm. But I have always heard stories about that scene that that McConaughey did not watch that footage prior to that shot. He, Nolan wanted him to kind of see it in that moment. I'm wondering your memory of that day behind that camera as that the sun, whatever sunlight you're using as it's spinning around and like hitting his face every every cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but behind that camera emotionally, I know you're doing a job, but do you feel that as you're watching it, watching McConaughey do that performance? And what's your memory of being behind the camera on that shot? Because it's become like one of the most iconic moments in yeah. cinema. I mean, one of the re- rewarding things things of this job is, you know, as a, as a cinematographer, as a, in a, or as a camera operator, as somebody that looks through the viewfinder on a, on a, on a film that essentially doesn't have any, you know, video assists. It's kind of the next best way of watching it right mm-hmm. through the camera, because the best way is, is to sit next to the camera and, and be in the moment, which, mm-hmm. which is very much what, what Chris, Chris does. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a kind of direct director that, trusts the technology but sits close to the camera and has this has this the most intimate connection with what, what whatever happens in front of the camera but to look through a viewfinder and to watch the scene of course you, you you're always reading the 
the frame for its you know technical inconsistencies or uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. but when when a when a you know when a when a when a shot really works when it really uh, comes together and that's light but mostly i think acting you know or performance when every everything falls into place like a puzzle i mean there's there's in a way nothing more beautiful you know uh, uh, very often you know you have to sort of shake yourself and and and, and tell yourself this is happening this is actually happening in front of uh, in front of you and you're you're it's your privilege to film this and 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 so so i'm very humbled towards sort of the subject matter and towards the concept that once in a while, you know, some magic seeps onto the celluloid, you know. And it could be day 50 of like 83 or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, also this kind of things happen very often when you have like kind of shitty days, you know, or like when stuff doesn't really work out. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, uh, you know, you're getting into over hours or, or uh, the sun is setting a little too, too fast. It's like very often at the end of the day, you know, you're stressing because you know that things are getting dark and the sun is going out and you have so little time left. And so towards the end of the day, you speed up and you start to build up a little bit more adrenaline, you know, and you start, everybody starts to work a little faster in order to get it in there mm. uh, uh, before the sun sets. Mm-hmm. And very often when, when, when that energy level is sort of, going up across the board you know that's very often when very good things happen as well mm-hmm. you know the best the best uh, the best things you very often shoot towards the end of the day you know when <laughs> when everybody's energy is up the sort of the 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 after lunch blues which always it takes uh, takes everybody including <laughs> myself to recover a little bit after lunch <laughs> and then when you start speeding up you know sometimes you're you're just flying and uh, and beautiful things happen. That's amazing. Um, there's a scene in Oppenheimer I would like to get your uh, take on, uh, and it's the speech that Killian gives um, that plays with the manipulation of sound. It's it's dropping out. We're yeah. hearing the foot stomps, and and there's specific imagery that you have to capture in order for that to have its impact, to have the full impact of that yeah. scene. It's a scene I will never forget. Um, can you just talk about how much you you're aware of what the sound is going to do so that it matches your imagery uh, in a sequence like that? I mean. You know, Chris is, is is very often sharing very much his ideas about what he wants to do with it, and 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 a lot of that is 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 part of the is part of his writing. He, you know, his writing is very sort of concise but precise. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, cues that are going to be very crucial to how that f- how 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 it's going to to work in in a, in its entity. Uh, he, he, you know, these descriptions, these cues are always there, but you know, he, there's a lot of stuff in his head, of course, that are always a surprise when you watch the film later. Mm. He's, you know, he's, he's one of the few directors from which you can watch the film afterwards when it's finished and you realize, oh, this is better than I imagined it, you right. know? Right. Um, <clears throat> very often you know as a dp you watch a you rewatch a film and you have imagined it yourself and it, it's not as good as you imagined it. it's okay you know <laughs> yeah yeah uh but with chris it's he's he he always um uh, you know he always hits you with a with with with, with that surprise you know it right. it always turns out beyond uh, you you know my own imagination sure. for sure 
Um, I'm assuming you had a screen behind Killian on that shot when it starts shaking, and then also even in the the, the gray room sequence when yeah. when Clark is really reeling at him. Like, are there not, are there not a screen? But we 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 came up with this uh, uh, this funny idea in which we actually are projecting <laughs> the actual wall that you're seeing onto the wall. So and 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 then Andrew Jackson is 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 you know feeding algorithms to that image so that it's so that it's scintillating so oh, that it's gosh. shaking so this the, all these these vib- vibration effects they were all done on camera wow uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. stellar they were projecting out out, out out of the windows of the ship right yeah. like it was, there was no green screen yeah. there's a wow. book that i just finished by Sidney lumet called making movies um mm-hmm. and it's probably one of the most incredible books i've ever read about the choices a filmmaker makes and he talks about 12 angry men and he talks about this great scene in 12 mm-hmm. angry men that throughout the film he changes the lenses to get more and more claustrophobic as the film yeah. goes yeah. on yeah and when i'm watching the casey affleck scene the interrogation scene that he has with with oppie I've seen it multiple times now. So I, I watch how you start that scene. We're wide in the room. And then as the scene goes more and more intense, we get closer and closer on Casey Affleck's face and Killian's face as we're kind of seeing yeah. the manipulation. Is that a similar situation? Are you are you are you changing the lenses to get more claustrophobic there? Or is that just pushing in? Well, we 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 uh, we are we have one lens that we refer to as 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 a little bit as the paranoia lens. You know, <laughs> it's a lens that was just a little too wide. Mm. You know, it's it, it's it's the paranoia lens because because it's so wide yet it can go very close so so you you very obviously invade somebody's private space right. you know as a watcher you you can really understand the proximity of a camera so mm. so 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 it's a very intimidating uh, way of of showing um, somebody's face and of course that has a very strong effect when you're in the room as well in sort of an interrogation situation mm. um you know everything within reason and everything with its its own subtlety but but since this was a film which was very much uh, about close ups we were we were very aware of you know the proximity of the camera to the actors for instance yeah. i know? love when you follow robert downey jr into that room and he just removes the scarf so beautifully and just kind of <laughs> just the way the camera was always it was you're, you're so right about the proximity it was interesting well and and in that way i mean that was something that chris and i spoke about a lot in not from the beginning you know this this film uh more than any other film we did it wanted to really have a you know have a you uh, feel, feel very subjective you know mm. uh especially since it's sort of constructed out of these two perspectives, like Strauss and Oppenheimer, mm. where else we really wanted to be in Oppenheimer's head. Mm. You know, we really wanted to sort of go to his face, get through it, turn around and look through his <laughs> eyes into the world, you know, yeah, <laughs> or stay outside and look at his eyes, but then project whatever he sees, mm. he sees into his, in, let us project into his face what we want, what we needed to mm. see. So, so, so we, we, we knew that it was, uh, it was going to be about that kind of intimacy and, and that kind of subjectivity. Mm. Um, I love coming to the SCAD Savannah Film Festival uh, and getting to see artists like you interact with the students. Um, I know how valuable that time is to them to be able to pick the brains of people who are in the industry and doing it. Um, and I'm sure that they hit you with incredible questions about your work. Um, yeah, they have. <laughs> w- what I'd love to know, though, is 
you um, when you were their age or when was it when you saw a shot that you had to know how it was done? Can you remember a shot that you saw that maybe put you on this path uh, similar to the way that these students are like where you just where it actually made you think of the work that went into pulling that shot off? Yeah, I mean, funnily enough, it was it was for me not so much about pulling off shots, you know, uh, it was much more. I just remember very well that, you know, how how a camera can create strong moods, you know, mm-hmm. and where I understood that 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 photography was such a big part of how you experience a film or how you get pulled through a story. And I just I just remember a retrospect of Nicholas Roque on television when I was I must have been 12 or something, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, 12, 13, and, and there was a bunch of Nicholas Rogue films, uh, you know, there was Eureka, there was, uh, you know, Don't Look Now, uh, um, uh, was it Track 29 or it was like Insignificance was there. Mm. It, it was, it was, it was a bunch of Nicholas Rogue films and, they, and, and they're very, very specifically meticulously photographed film because Nick, Nick Rogue, he used to be a cinematographer himself as mm. well. So he had he had a very meticulous, a very specific, you know, visual language, mm-hmm. and I just remember that 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 I that I got aware of that a camera is actually doing things that has influence on on a story mm-hmm. or how you experience a story, mm-hmm. and I was kind of maybe even too young, you know, or or I definitely was too young to really understand what these films uh, were about, uh, but I remember them very well. Mm-hmm. So I rewatched them later, of course, you know. And I still think that they're interesting and brilliant, uh, you know, but we very point, different we than... Uh, <laughs> point out so many times on this show that the, a film doesn't change at all, but you change. Yeah. You absolutely. Know? So absolutely. you watch it at a certain age, it meant something to you, and then later it could mean something completely different. Absolutely. But I would, I would, I would definitely argue that, 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 that seeing those ones that young definitely turned me on to or made me aware of cinematography. It's amazing. Yeah, I have to tell you, to have you on our show is such a big deal because I, I've been following your work for so many years. I think you, uh, you're you my favorite director of photography working today. I mean, I genuinely, I mean, I love I Richardson, it. I love Prieto, I love all those guys and Chivo, but you, you, just the way you operate, it makes me want to go to the movies and live these films as events. Like I saw Dunkirk six times in 70 millimeter IMAX, uh, obviously Tenet, I saw multiple times, even though during the pandemic. Um, but to have you here is wild. And I was thinking about the movies you've made so far with Mr. Nolan. And you think about the first two you made scored by Hans Zimmer, Hans Zimmer. Mm-hmm. Second two you make scored by the incredible Ludwig, who's um, his music for Oppenheimer. Yeah. I listened to that on vinyl. It's one of the greatest scores I've ever heard. But you, as the cinematographer, when you sit down and you finally see your images set to music, I have to imagine that's an emotional experience for you when you mm-hmm. finally see it all come together. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference in how you felt with Zimmer's music attached to your visuals than it did with Ludwig's mm-hmm. music attached to your visuals? And I, and they're very different musicians, but what's that experience for you emotionally when you see that set to your music, set to your... Let me start by saying thank you. You know, I, I, I can say thank you, but I also have to have to have to add to this, of course, or add, uh, you know, f- f- one thing that I loved f- from the start from working with Chris is that Chris is so much committed to the cinematic experience. And, you know, he's all in for, you know, 
the movies as an event, you know, and he, he, from the start, he's always, you know, laboring and beating himself over to, you know, create experiences for people that are, you know, uh, that are magic and that are, you know, that feel big and definitely feel like things that, that are, you know, that, that are not possible to experience anywhere else than in a theater, mm -hmm. you know? So he's super much committed and he's like tirelessly working and slaving for years. And then when I started joining him, I started joining him very much into that quest, you know, with, you know, beating ourselves up over what, what kind of cameras we shoot on and, and, and the technology we use. And, uh, you know, it's very often mistaken that, that, that it feels like it's a luxurious or it's a smug thing that we shoot on the big format, but for, it, for, for Chris and for myself, It is like it's like hundred percent commitment to the experience in the audience, uh, the experience for the audience in the cinema. And so, uh, you know, I I think with Dunkirk, you know, uh, we haven't done any less. And and I love Simmer, I love Ludwig. I I, I think you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm always very sensitive to when I get compared, for instance, to Wally, I mean, we're very different, mm. different, um, human beings yeah. and, you know, we vibe with different things. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and the nice thing with Chris is that I have the feeling that he, he is very much interested in, you know, the, the personal takes of his, of his, uh, collaborators, you know? Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, he has he 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 has never sort of expected from me to be Wally or mm. to be similar to Wally. I think I think that Chris has always done his thing, and he has never sort of diverted from that. But then has invited me sort of to add my personality to the whole thing, mm. and in that way, he's doing the same, or he's been doing the same with Ludwig. You know, mm. he. Uh, uh, he makes different music than Hans and, and, and it's very refreshing to hear, uh, new sounds, you know, new soundscapes It's very refreshing to see Ludwig coming up, coming up with new cues or, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very different. And in that way, every single film is so different and also needs to be different. You know, every film has its own right of existence, I would say. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I hope that kind of answers no, that does. question. But <laughs> it's just great to hear, yeah. Well, I know we're running out of time. I'll get you in here on this one. Um, Matt Damon was doing press for, for Oppenheimer, and he was talking about uh, how he had told his wife he was going to take a break, you know, and he'd be at home. But on the one caveat was that if Mr. Nolan called, uh, do you have something similar in place? Are you, whenever, no matter what's going on when Chris calls, are you are you ready to jump <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I I I I, I take a, a a whole a lot of uh, caution and time. You know, when Chris is about to start something, I'm not. I will not recklessly just jump into a project before I know what he's doing. Because, yeah, I I I, I, I you know, there's something when you have done like four films together, like we have now, mm. you learn so much on each and every film and what you learn, you also carry with you on the next project. Mm -hmm. So, so in a way, uh, uh, you get a shorthand and at some things you just get better and, 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 and somehow it's so much easier to struggle through the, 
you know, for the white noise or the, you know, or the, or the, um, uh, you know, the, the things that are, that no, that don't matter. And when you have been at places together, you know, you can just go straight to the point and you can, you know, filmmaking becomes a purer and purer uh, uh, experience every next consecutive film. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's for me, it's, it's very clear that I just, I want to hold out for whenever Chris comes with something new. I just want to end by saying this. We talk about a lot of Nolan movies, uh, your cinematography on her, uh, which I always found amazing that Spike wanted to shoot futuristic LA with Shanghai, which is why mm. I went to Shanghai for the first time. Your work with the fighter is brilliant. Um, let but the I, right one in. I can't get out of here without mentioning the pool scene and let the right one in. We, we, <laughs> that was the first time I saw your work. Mm. And I, and before we let you go, is that, does that something you still think? Does that scene still, you still think about that at all when you're making these, uh, when making other films, because that scene, I, I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And I loved what Matt Reeves did with the remake, but the original was just, yeah, it was just amazing. I appreciate it. You know, uh, uh, that films regularly comes back. You know, it's 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 somehow for whatever reason that film vibed a lot with 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 people and pe- it resonated uh, a lot. And uh, and I also I I still love that film for so many reasons. What that film did for me very much is, you know, um, we we were very meticulous with creating oneers. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 just the whole idea that when you approach a scene, you know, to ask yourself, what would you do if you only had one shot in order to create a scene? Mm-hmm. And uh, by doing that, it forced us sort of to really unlock the scene to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you have to be aware of rhythm. You have to be aware of tension. You have to, you know, you have to know when you want the close-up and when you want to have the wide shot. So and you start moving the camera. So that's how we very much build up every scene in that in 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 that film. And up until today, sort of that method of, you know, wanting to do things in a Warner, living in a reality where, you, of course, you you you, you know you. You very often divert from it, but but just purely that ambition still helps me a lot today in how mm. I approach uh, approach films. And you talk about the pool scene, but that was that was in the book that was a very <laughs> sort of widely described and 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 very involved involved action sequence that 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 Thomas and I then decided to do in in one shot but that that came in a way from that for, from that principle you know well, thank incredible. you so much yeah. yeah they are pulling you out they're I saying you flew, <laughs> I flew here today for this and I'm flying home right after this so I'm, this, I'm, the, I'm I'm thank I'm, you that's such an honor well, well, to have you. thank you yeah, so much for your time thank I really you. appreciate thank you coming you. on thank you so thank much you. we want to thank uh, specifically our friends at the SCAD Savannah Film Festival uh, our friends at Universal Pictures of course for coming out and then Hoyda Van Hoydema for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. And hopefully you guys realized something that I really took away from it was that it was just an incredibly casual conversation. Yeah. Uh, he just, you know, plopped down in the chair and sat across from us on the couch and we were able to sort of break down starting with Oppenheimer and then really feeding into, and Kevin, I don't know if you got this sense, like I didn't want to keep bringing up Nolan in our questions, right? Yeah. I wanted him to sort of stand alone as the as the work that he does necessarily. Yeah. And when we got into other films that he did outside of Nolan's sphere, I was really happy about that. But he kept bringing up Christopher Nolan. You know, he kept name dropping Chris, which I yeah. know freaks you out. Yeah, It's weird. I can't, I can't 
call him Chris. And it's weird <laughs> hearing somebody call him Chris. I, yeah, yeah. I just don't. It just doesn't operate in my mind that way. But they're so symbiotic at this point, like their working relationship is so in tune. And that was one of the things, you know, to hear him talk about that and to give us more insight into the way, like whether he storyboards and, you Mm -hmm. know, to get some insight into like hearing him break down the work that went into um, the scene with the with the crowd, you know, chanting and and stomping their feet and the audio dropping in and out and and them knowing what they were going to do in order to, to match the the visuals of that was incredible but um yeah i got the sense that he he hadn't really told a bunch of those stories that he hadn't really been asked you know questions about those specific scenes from the angles that we were going after so i was really happy with the way that it went yeah and and you know as we were saying before this started i mean i i flew in that morning and then flew home that night so this interview was a huge deal for our show but on a personal level i have hoida's film strips all over my apartment i have dunkirk film strip 70 millimeter imax i have you know interstellar 70 millimeter imax i've seen his movies multiple times in theaters and then you think about the 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 filmography itself i mean to be able to tell him because i mean i went to shanghai china just because of her Mm -hmm. and uh, and the decision that spike jones and hoita had in terms of shooting futuristic los angeles in shanghai to make it look like it was decades in the future or whatever it was these are all like interesting decisions that are conversations that happen between a filmmaker and their director of photography, which is interesting in terms of the first question about the day for night stuff with it, with Peel and the different conversations he has with different filmmakers when technical advances are changing um, on the fly like that. What blew my mind, it was so funny because like he just like kind of like just says like nonchalantly, yeah, we just ran the film backwards to get those scenes in tenant. Like, and I literally, I think I was just like, what do you mean by that? He goes, Literally, we ran it backwards. I'm like, I don't understand what that means. Like, like having film go through a camera backwards, because for people, you know, have heard our show. A lot of those backward scenes in Tenet are not rewound. Those are shot that way. The either the actors are acting backwards and or they're feeding the film backwards to create a backwards shot. When you talked so about funny, like the way that they put a driver's seat in the back oh, of the car so that that car could be driven in reverse, essentially. But the driver's moving forward. Like I almost got the sense that he doesn't quite know how Tenet oh, was filmed. Dude, dude, what's interesting is the first That's time like, we ever Tenet, had Tenet has to be like whenever you're. You're in like trigonometry and you study <laughs> and you learn how to do all the form, all the equations and then you do the test. And then six months later, you're like, I don't remember how I did the right. test. Yeah. I aced the test. But I don't remember how I aced the test. Well, yeah. we first time we ever had Christopher Nolan on the show was which it sounds crazy to even say that out loud. But with him and John David for Tenet, I tried to ask Nolan, why is there a rapping us about that scene where the car is flipping back or backwards? And, and we ran out of time. And I still had no idea how they did it. And I finally got to ask Hoyda about it, which was cool. Um, this was really surreal. I mean, I do want to shout out his other work. Uh, his work with James Gray on um, Ad Astra is remarkable. Mm. Um, he's just a, uh, uh, the fighter, David O. Russell. Um, he shot the hell out of the fighter. Um, he's just a, a director of photography who's his language of film and, and camera work is just just speaks to me on a level that I don't. I can't comprehend. And people always think I'm insane when I say I see these movies six, seven, eight times. And I'm sitting in the theater with Sean. So right after the interview was over, the cool thing about it was that the person from SCAD walked us to these two reserved seats in the theater um, to watch the film on 35 mil. And everything that we had just asked him (laughs) was coming up. Um, And to 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 have asked him about the Casey Affleck scene was so cool. And for people who haven't seen Oppenheimer, or if you have seen Oppenheimer, there's this really great uh, 
uh, intense sequence between Oppenheimer and Colonel Pash, who's played by um, Casey Affleck. And it's just a simple dialogue sequence. Uh, but the way that that he lends that he called it a paranoia lens in the interview, as you heard, you know, you don't think about this stuff when you're watching the movie because you're subconsciously taking it in when he's speaking a language as you go closer and closer and closer and closer on Affleck's face or, or Killian's face. Like you're not aware that the camera or the lens may have shifted, but you are aware that you are feeling a lot more paranoid and intense in that moment. And I think that's the beauty of film language. And then to hear him open up a little bit about watching his visuals connect to Ludwig's scores and Hans mm-hmm. Hans's scores. Um, it was cool. And Sean and I talked about this afterwards. It was kind of interesting to hear him talk openly about the Wally Pfister thing, because for people who aren't aware of this, Wally Pfister, as I mentioned, he was Nolan's guy, man. And I mean, mm-hmm. Dark Knight, uh, you know, it was revolutionary. So even Hoyta said that he had to learn what the IMAX camera could do from Nolan. <laughs> you know what I mean? Be- because of the work he did with Wally on Dark Knight. But I think a lot of people out there on the internet want to pit them against each other. It's like, why mm-hmm. did he shift from Wally? Because Wally ended up directing a movie called Transcendence. That's why he ended up going his own way. Um, and I think that's when Hoyta dropped in to do or start to work on Interstellar. And so that time frame is really interesting if you think about it. But uh, shout out to Wally Pfister, an incredible DP, obviously, and Hoyta for being so awesome to us. And yeah, that was truly a, uh, an experience that I'm just happy I got to meet the guy. Honestly, I was to be so glad that you came. Yeah. Honestly, I was yeah. so happy that you came. And uh, and it was really annoying because while we watched Oppenheimer after that bit, whenever a scene came up that we had broken down with Hoyta, Kevin and I leaned over to each other and we said, Hoyt had just told us about this. <laughs> yeah, it was like the, the Chris Farley thing. Like, you remember this time? Like, we literally were like, it was it was wild. Like, like there's a lot of these experiences that I can't. It's hard to explain emotionally what this stuff means to us. But to sit in a theater watching it on film after he discussed it is pretty wild. That was really that was um, surreal. That was really and he was surreal. so nice to us and he was so cool about it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for 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 being on our show, Mr. Hoytema. You're awesome, Jake. Maybe next year you'll come down and join us at the Savannah's Film Festival. It's it's, it's a, a beautiful. I got to tell you, walking around that area, it felt like I was at. I felt like I was like I was like this is where I should be. Should we do a this should we do a real blend uh, real blend takeover of SCAD next year? Yes, I'm, dude, Ooh. I'm down. You know, really what like, like, like we could have done something with like Hoyda and the like Q&A or whatever we could have done sure, sure, sure. of some mm-hmm. sort. So anyways, thank you. Uh, and if you missed our Chris Nolan interview, Chris, Christopher Nolan interview for uh, Oppenheimer, just go back into our uh, archives. I call, him, I call him by his middle name. I don't know about you guys, but call that's, him Chrissy that's, Poo. That's, that's, that's the terms. Yeah, that we're right. I also I, I, name? if you're watching this on YouTube, I've dropped the Nolan interview at somewhere in there, but I've also dropped because you mentioned James Gray, one of our all time oh, great yeah. interviews. Cool, one of oh. our all time great interviews. James With his Gray. recipe for sauce. Yes. yes. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if you guys know this, but Jake Hamilton and Christopher Nolan share the same middle name. Do they really? <gasps> Christopher. Really? Now I'm afraid. Well, now I'm afraid to like say because I, I don't know what we put out on the internet. Oh, I think everybody already knows. You guys share a social security number too, Jake. Yeah, yeah, right. say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead and say it. Yeah, go ahead. Jake, Jake, you yeah. did a whole bit. I was saying Twilight you did a whole cast. bit. Yeah, Christopher Edward Nolan. Oh, Edward, Edward. Yeah, that's right. yeah. 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 Well, I was like, yeah. I, well, I was just about to say, like, I, I was just about to be protective of my middle name, and I was like, I did a whole bit with the Twilight cast. Like, I can't be protective of my middle <laughs> name now. It was brilliant, Jacob and Edward, and he would sit down. It, with, it was the result of being what eighteen Twilight movies in and going. I've got no 
questions left for any of you. <laughs> Wait till yeah. it comes back around. Like the yeah. Hunger Games is coming back around. Yes, it is. <laughs> Interestingly, yeah. There's more material for all these different things. All right. So I just want to briefly give you guys a rundown of what I got to see um, at SCAD. In addition to doing um, Ahoyda Van Hoytema, uh, they had an incredible lineup this year. Um, they showed uh, Maestro and Saltburn, and they were going to have Rustin and the Holdovers and Priscilla, and they're closing with Ava DuVernay's uh, origin. I had to come back early in order to do a couple of interviews here from the house. I just wanted them to go really well. I had a couple of really important interviews, but I was able to see. So they opened with Nyad, um, which is the uh, Netflix film that's going to be coming out with Annette Benning and Jodie Foster. I was lucky enough to see that before I went down there. Sunday night, they had another film. Oh, American Fiction which I'd also been able, I was able to see that up in Toronto. That's making the rounds. Who directed um, American fiction? That is Cord Jefferson, I believe is his okay. last name. Um, and then that film also just won the audience award at the Middleburg Film Festival in uh, Virginia. So um, yeah. people, people are talking about Jeffrey Wright potentially getting uh, in for best actor uh, for his performance in American fiction and that film potentially vying for a best picture award. What I did manage to see was Todd Haynes's um, May, December, which I can tell you is a Todd Haynes film. <laughs> um, so take that for what you wanted to believe. Uh, I think Todd Haynes makes kind of the kind of dramatic soap opera type films. Mm-hmm. Um, and this very much plays to, to that tone. It's, it's a great, great setup for a movie. I uh, didn't guys... realize what it was about until I recently saw the trailer. And then I went, really? That yeah, that's what this movie's about. I had no idea. Yeah. So to, for people who might not know, um, Julianne Moore's character was at one point a 36 year old woman who had an affair with a seventh grader. Uh, I don't know how familiar the name Mary Kay Letourneau is, but that was a very famous teacher that had an affair with one of her elementary school students. This is a real thing that happened. And then, of course, this woman became Wait, a seventh, tabloid. You said seventh grade in the movie. It's a seventh grader. Yes, that's 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 middle school. Yes, that would okay. be middle school. All right, just to clarify. What did I say? You said elementary. <laughs> well, see, yeah, elementary to, to me, elementary to me is K through eight. Because oh, my elementary school, yeah, I think it's my elementary but... school was K through eight. I didn't have a separate oh. middle school. Mine was yeah, six, seven, eight was middle for me. That's yeah, weird. I went, I went to a Same. bunch of different middle schools, and I went to ones that were seven, eight, and then ones that were fifth through eight, where they called middle Interesting. school. So that's I think it's oh, just, weird. I don't know why, but well, I was in a one room schoolhouse in the middle of the desert. And, <laughs> yeah, what was uh, what had... was school like on the prairie, Sean? Yeah, because Sean, you graduated high school in 1902. Was it? Yep, somewhere yeah, around yeah, there. Yeah, 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 if I remember yeah, correctly, he had to yeah. learn all 48 states. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's really good. Assholes. Uh, <laughs> but but then in May December, um, Natalie Portman is playing um, an actress, a tele, uh, a famous television actress who is about to play the Julianne Moore character in a oh. in a TV movie. And so she has um they've worked out an agreement that Natalie Portman's character is going to come and shadow the woman to kind of get a sense of their backstory and as much as she can and and Julianne Moore's character is still married to the guy. Um and they've been married for 20 something years. They have a family together. Wow. Um, and it's it's a lot of like the town where they live theoretically accepts them, but do they really? And then what is Natalie Portman's true motivation? Is she really just shadowing to learn more about the film or does she have some deeper um, meanings for why she wants to get involved? But 
Todd Haynes obviously worked with Julianne Moore a number of different times. She's terrific in it. She's doing um, an interesting character choice to play this woman who has been kind of like a tabloid sensation forever. And Natalie Portman, when Natalie Portman can zero in on this kind of um, very cerebral, uh, but also uh, like a tense, a tense to the point of being uncomfortable, like she's kind of like an overachiever. A little Black Swanish. I don't want to just automatically go to Black Swan, but like she's so uber focused on getting the character correct, uh, and their dynamic is is terrific. I, and I do this think is a Todd true Haynes, story. No, 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 no. I don't think so. Um, but it's definitely it based too, on he, yeah. it's based on stories that I have seen. Sure. So this Mary Kay Letourneau character, I don't remember what year that was. It was in the nineties, I want to say, but that was an actual story of, okay. a, of a real woman who had an affair with one of her students and uh i mean i take notice to that just because michelle's a teacher and michelle was mm. horrified to hear about anything like this how i mean well, any human would be horrified but you like know, a teacher-student which, relationship is bizarro so which is also why and again this is not a teacher-student relationship but that's why it's what makes priscilla so interesting in terms sure. of because he was 24 and she was 14 mm-hmm. uh and it's I'm, I'm interested to see how it's explored in this film, because the way Sofia Coppola deals with it, I mean, again, very different circumstances, but still, you know, an older person and a younger person. So I'm yep. very fascinated. But that, that's a really interesting um, story to have. Yeah. So I want to see that, actually. And so for those two specifically, their performances are great. But that film pales in comparison to Poor Things, which I saw immediately after it actually had to run from one to the other. Uh, and, and you, you guys, don't like is, Yorgos Lanthimos. Yeah. Was this your favorite of the festival? Uh, <laughs> sorry. It sorry. was actually. And uh, with a you trying to figure out how to get killing of the sacred deer in there. Um, you're right. I don't love Yorgos's films up to this point. Um, he just bounces off me for some reason. Like his you don't like his, the favorite. No, I didn't really care oh, for it. Oh, the favor was extraordinary. Yeah, I don't really? know. Something about his storytelling just has not connected with me up until this point. But I Love really, lobster. really got into this movie. Um, it's And it's, you know, as bizarre as his other films, there's a hook to it that I don't even want to tell you guys. But essentially, it's um, a Frankenstein story where Willem Dafoe's character um, has created Emma, Emma Stone's character and that's all i kind of want to say um but yeah, emma stone there. i don't want to know anything i don't know no, i know nothing that's basically about it except all for I know. it's insane that's all you know yeah. I, then yeah. i will yeah. stop but what i will say is that um it, it emma stone is, is remarkable i legitimately think that she's a front runner in the actress category jake was immediately asking me like even more so than lily gladstone who you know is campaigning in lead we will probably have this conversation a number of different times on whether she should be lead or supporting mm. um I, think I, agree the, I agree on the lead. I agree on the, on the lead, lead for her. Yeah, I, um, especially I saw Killers again. I, I, I wanted to mention this real fast. I saw it again uh, last weekend or last Thursday. So right before the first episode came out, pacing definitely felt different on the second viewing. Did it? Um, I thought it moved faster on the second viewing. Um, so I wanted to say that because I um, it hit different the second time. I still am at my same rating and same thoughts of the film, but I did find the pacing too, and the FBI stuff actually to be different feeling oh. than um, it was. But I think Lily's lead in that film, she's the heart and soul of that movie. And every single scene relies on the reaction of her to I can see that a tragic event. So I, I, I do believe that she now I haven't seen Emma Stone's performance in poor things, and I'm sure it's amazing, um, yes. but I do understand the leading 
campaign. Jake, don't you? I mean, like, I feel like she's oh, God, yeah. the lead yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, but let me ask you in, in regards to Emma Stone's Oscar, I guess enough time has passed since La La Land, but do you think the, the recency oh. of like, well, it's been, was it less than 10 years since we gave her best act, you know, and look, I mean, we're my favorite actor is an actor who received a best actor. Back to back. Uh, it, back to back. Sure. So, but I feel like that doesn't really happen as what much. What were the back-to-back anymore. movies? Private Philadelphia Ryan and Forrest Gump. Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. Yeah. yeah. Did he not win for Private Ryan? No. Wow. No. I'm not even. Was he nominated? I'm not even. Yeah, sure he, he was, was nominated. Yeah, he was, yeah, was, he? He was nominated. Yeah. So he should have so, won for Castaway, but that's different. That's a different podcast. Yes, I do agree with that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so to answer your question about Emma Stone, I th- honestly believe that she is so good in this that people won't mind giving her a second Oscar. Mm. <laughs> And I also believe that maybe I'm overstating how much I like Emma Stone. I, I kind of feel like the Academy wouldn't mind if she's sure. a two time. Yeah, everyone likes Emma Stone, but, but not even like I, I think she's that talented. You know, yeah, like oh, I legitimately brilliant. think her yeah. range is phenomenal. Yeah. And and if you said two time Academy Award winner Emma Stone, people would be like, yeah, oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. That's that kind of makes sense. I mean, we kind of forget that like those things happen, you know, within within a very short amount of time. Jane Fonda won uh, within a short amount of time. De Niro won two Oscars, sure. you know, within a short amount of time. You know, uh, Nicholson has won in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Sure. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, they, these things do happen. But I think we forget about them because we just look back at, you know, uh, you know, as it being sort of history. But, but it's okay, also it's she's I, doing something in this she's never done before. Um, and so I could see people I, I could see Academy members rewarding her because it's such a different performance than what she gave for for La La Land, which yeah. one also. And you know, his films really do well at the Oscars. Isn't that isn't that is that Olivia the film? Coleman? Olivia Olivia Coleman beat Glenn Close. Glenn Close. Yeah, yeah. That's right. I, I do want to ask, because I think, you know, I, there, there tends to be one race every year that like really excites me. We're like, oh, my God, like all the nominees. And, and at one actresses is, is absolutely one of them. But another one that I think is going to be really crazy cool is supporting actor. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, Downey. you know, you've, you've got everything from Downey. I, I still say you don't sleep on on De Niro. Like De Niro showed that oh, he's wow. still like just one of the all time greats. Um, then you've got Gosling. Uh, and then I know I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about uh, one. I've talked. I heard a lot of people from May, December, the man who plays obviously the former seventh grader, now a grown man. I've heard he is yeah. phenomenal. And then mm-hmm. I've heard in terms of poor things, a lot of talk between uh, Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. And the reason I bring, bring up Willem Dafoe is one, I just really want to live in a world where Willem Dafoe has an Oscar mm-hmm. and and the supporting categories, not to not to say that that he doesn't deserve it, but the supporting categories tend to be the ones that I feel like a lot of times actors win the quote unquote career Oscar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if there were more so than Downey, because I know a lot of people say, well, Downey has the overdue narrative. To me, Defoe has the overdue narrative way leaps and bounds over Downey. So I'm curious as to uh, whether or not you think Defoe is in a position to maybe sweep in and be a sleeper uh, a contender in the supporting actor category. Mm-hmm. I will say this um, without giving away much of anything. Ruffalo has the splashier part. Mm-hmm. And I can completely understand why people will will nominate him because of the things that he's asked to do. I liked Defoe a lot better in the film. Oh, wow. Um, he's a more interesting character. There's things about him that you're going to be he's questioning. He's like the and, Dr. Frankenstein, right? Yes, without a doubt. Um, but it's even like 
that's the very surface of this character. There's a lot more going on with him. Why does and this character give me lighthouse vibes? It's his like speech pattern. He has a little bit of that weird speech pattern. Um, hmm. It's it's hard. You'll see it. You'll see it when you okay. when you when you see a lot more of it in the movie. I can see why you're getting that. That it's makes the images of his face that, that kind of gave me that vibe. Yeah. Yes, they are. It's also terrific makeup on his face. I can honestly see both of them getting nominated and they both just sort of take focus away from each other. But to, before we get out of that category, when rewatching Oppenheimer with with Kevin sitting in that theater, because I'd only I'd seen it twice. But back when it opened. Downey's fucking unbelievably good. Yeah. Like he is incredibly good. And we didn't even get to the his third act. I know Like <laughs> every scene he gets is like a meal and it just feels like he's. Uh, I, how does he? I don't see how he doesn't that's a, win. That's a cool story. After X amount of years is. on top of the box office and being sort of the it's biggest terrific. star, and then getting like a great role in winning, that would be that's mm. a cool story. I if they I, put the man who moved the earth in his Oscar clip, I'm gonna freak out. You're that gonna freak his, out anyway. Kevin. That is his big scene, though. That's his big dialogue scene. He says, "The man who moved the earth." I hope it's when Einstein walks past him and blows him off, oh. and he just looks horrified. What a um, moment. One of the great thing I got to do in Savannah that I just want to give a quick shout out to is um, Pete Zone, who's the director of Elemental. Uh, he, the, he, they brought that down there. There's an animation panel that they were doing as part of the Savannah College of Art and uh, Design Festival. And I, I mentioned the Spider-Verse was there. They also did a screening of Elemental. This was on Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Uh, it was opposite a screening of Barbie, which the students were, I can tell you, over the moon about. There was people dressed in pink all over the place. And and I knew Barbie was going to draw incredibly well. But I was able to do I was uh, asked to do the moderation for the Q&A after the elemental screening. And so I ducked into the theater on my way over to meet Pete in the green room. And it was packed. And I was so happy because it's a movie that's on streaming right now, you can get on Disney plus it had been in theaters. Um, but to see people come out and support that movie, uh, at the festival was really important to me, meant a lot to me. And just telling the story of that movie, which, you know, it got off to what is historically the lowest opening weekend in Pixar history. Uh, and then it just didn't disappear. You know, it, it held its legs. Um, it would drop, where you'd see a normal movie over the summertime go down like 50 to 60 percent, it would drop like 12 yeah. percent or and some of the weeks, the longer it went, it actually went up. You know, it, it gained an, an audience, which is incredible. And it ended up topping out. And this was pretty funny because I had all these statistics written down and I was reading them off at the beginning of the Q&A. And I was like, it made it to four hundred and eighty eight uh, million dollars worldwide. And Pete's like four ninety three. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm very sorry. Very sorry. Um, but he. So I got to meet him backstage in the green room. And what I really was impressed by is that he remembered us from the, the from when we went out to Pixar and immediately came over and was like, oh, my God, I loved talking with uh, you and Jake and Kevin. And he was asking a ton of questions about Real Blend and how we record and who we've spoken to recently and was still gushing about, you know, how much he enjoyed the the interview that we did and the format of the show. And then talking to him on the stage was just so great because he got really candid about the roller coaster ride that he's been on emotionally uh, with this film, how when it came out and it didn't get uh, incredible reviews and it was met with that box office reaction that the, they really at the studio to, you know, thought that they were getting a hit, you know, that this was uh, going to break through to the audience. And then they were shocked, you know, when it didn't connect <clears throat> and he really started to personally doubt himself. And then as it caught on and found its audience. And, and the one thing that he said, which I thought was unbelievable was, um, 
he goes, I, I you hear the term word of mouth, but he goes, I've never really had a, a personal experience with it. He goes, but that's the only way to describe how this movie found its audience. You know, it was audience members connecting with the story and connecting with the material and connecting with the characters and then turning around and saying to other audience members, you have to go see this in the theater, go. And the numbers back that up and it, it found its audience. And when it went to Disney Plus in the first five days on Disney Plus, it uh, allegedly did 26 million views and was the highest gross or the, the, the most viewed uh, film on the platform for its first five days. Uh, and again, these are streaming numbers. So we have to take Disney's, you know, uh, on faith, essentially. But still, I'm thrilled that all of this was going on uh, with Pete. And he's just an incredibly nice guy who deserves all the success. The minute we finished our Q&A, um, a girl who had done a portrait uh, of Wade uh, the character from Elemental came running up and Pete was just blown away by this. And he jumped off the stage and took a picture with her and that immediately went on his socials. And so uh, th that's why I, I love that festival so much because it has the the college element attached to it. And these students are just so hungry for the opportunity to meet these artists who they um are you know trying to follow in their footsteps essentially and 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 glean any kind of knowledge that they can about uh about their individual journeys so to hear pete talk about how to break into animation you know what they look for at pixar from up-and-coming artists the struggles that he went through and then for him to really say to, to these people you know it's opening weekend I'm I'm living proof that opening weekend doesn't necessarily matter as much as people say that it is, you know, you have to believe in, in your story. You have to believe in your characters. You have to believe in your art for this movie in particular. Um, there was a time in the middle of production when they scrapped the story that they had and they had he just had to throw it out because of all the different um, test screenings that they were holding at Pixar and all the notes he was getting back from the Pixar animator saying like, Hey, man, if we're just being candidly honest, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. You know, I feel different about this. And he had to accept all that and, and take it all in and and then just chuck it and start over. And it, the, so for him to give that message to to the students of like how valuable notes are and don't be afraid if something's not uh, hitting the way that you want it to hit to just, you know. Start over, you know, get, go back to go back to the roots, go back to what you think it's supposed to be. I thought it was a really valuable, valuable conversation. Um, and I really appreciated getting a chance to catch up with him again. So that's um, so cool. I'm going to plug our uh, initial interview with Pete, which the three of us got to do uh, at Pixar, which was phenomenal. And um, I, I want to promote Elemental again. If you haven't given Elemental a shot, um, if you, you know, kind of think that Pixar has become a factory for sequels, you know, and Toy Story 4 and they've got Inside Out 2 coming up. Um, uh, to me, it's it's a tremendous original story. It's a love story. It's got great characters, uh, the visuals for it to go in and see him, uh, see how they did Ember again and to see how they did Wade, you know, this fire character and this water character and the, the whole of Elemental City. I'm a I'm a huge fan of that movie. So I, I'm really glad I got a chance to catch back up with it. So uh, I just want to tell you guys about that. OK, he's welcome is, on the show anytime. Of course, and I think he would love to come back on, to be honest with you. He was really happy to, to talk about it. Um, it is Halloween spooky season, and uh, we have a horror aficionado here on the show. Uh, but we're all going to go around the horn, and we're going to say, you can only put one film on, one film for spooky season. Uh, what are you putting on, Jake Hamilton? Mine is, is an incredibly cliche answer, but just because of its ties to... Illinois and the suburbs of Illinois and, and what is supposed to be right outside Chicago. Um, I've got to go with Halloween. 
even though it's shot in Los Angeles, the whole concept of Haddonfield, Illinois, is that it's supposed to be the street that you grew up on. It's, it's supposed to be, the, you know, the the horror of this this thing that happens is that it could happen two blocks over. And and, you know, I you go out into again, even though they didn't shoot it in Chicago, you, you go to Lincoln Park, you go to you know, you don't even have to get outside Chicago and you see a street that has the kind of shrubbery that that Michael was just like, you know, just leaning out of, you know, and <laughs> and and I it, it just feel, you know, everything about that movie feels like fall. It just feels like that crispness, you know, if it feels like the the leaves changing. And uh, to me, that's because there are so many great horror movies that I save for a little bit later in the year. You know, I, I always talk about how. You know, I don't watch The Thing or The Shining until I know that it's going to be like downpouring snow in Chicago. And I kind of sort of so my my fall enter into fall is is, is got to be Halloween, though. You know, it's so funny. I am working on a story with my station now about all of the great horror movies that were filmed in Chicago. And there were like in, in my deep dive, it really made me realize, even though, you know, I'm, I'm counting Halloween as a Chicago horror film, even though they didn't shoot it here. Um, Child's Play was shot about, you know, oh, yeah. a, a half mile from my apartment. Um, both the, the 90s Candyman and the most recent Candyman was about uh, Cabrini Green, which was, a, you know, a, a Chicago projects uh, that was, you know, very prominent in Chicago in the 90s. And uh, there's been that the area has been super gentrified uh, since then. And that's really what the new Candyman was all about. And even like the the, the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street was filmed oh, yeah. in, in Chicago. So like. You know, it, it, the, the fact that, that the city of Chicago can call itself home to Freddie, Chucky, Candyman and, and you know, uh, Michael is, is is pretty incredible. So that's a long way of saying to me, like, you, you can't get through it because I, I tend to shake it up, uh, but I can't get through this season uh, without uh, putting on John Carpenter's uh, 1978 masterpiece, which turns uh, 45 years old tomorrow. Um, which, uh, depending on when you listen to this, it's already passed. You missed it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it turns 45 tomorrow and it's just, just such an incredible, perfect, you know, seamless film. I, I love it. I love it so, so much. Kevin, you get one opportunity to scare an audience. What are you putting on? <laughs> to, if, to actually Those are scare two different questions. Those are yeah, two different, different questions. Question. It's spooky season and you can only put one film on. What are you putting on? Probably Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Oh, just because Sleepy Hollow. It's just the vibe of that film. I was going to say um, that's a good vibe film. Yeah. Right? And and it, it just kind of has it has a specific vibe to it, but also like Colleen Atwood's costume design and obviously Tim Burton. And, and, and it's just one of those films. Uh, do you guys know a little trivia question? Who shot Sleepy Hollow? Don't look it up. Is it Chivo? It was Chivo. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, I was Chivo. That. I did Manuel know that. Manuel Lubezki, uh, who shot <laughs> Children of Men and obviously Gravity and a bunch of stuff. Um, no, but Sleepy Hollow, it, it, there's something about that film. That or Trick or Treat. Those are like the two that I kind of. I was thinking Trick or Treat, too. I love Trick or Treat. Mike Doherty. Yeah. And I think. Um, but Sleepy Hollow, to me, is just the vibe. Just the it, it, it's the, the the way it's shot, the tone of it. Uh, there's humor and, and absurd violence, but it's also scary and. Christopher Walken, I, I, I had a chance to interview Colleen Atwood the other day, actually, weirdly enough. I never talked to her before. Um, she did the costume design for um, Pain Hustlers, I think, mm. uh, the David Yates uh, film. And I was she was talking about Sleepy Hollow and how they had to de- develop 
that's that costume for Christopher Walken, because remember, his head is <laughs> below. So there's like a whole oh, yeah, thing right. how they but had wait, to like did he operate play, that. I thought did, did, I thought Ray Park was the actual did headless he? horseman. I thought, oh, I, thought I, I can't, I can't imagine I can't imagine they would get that, that Walken would do the part. I think there are some scenes where Walken is in the suit, though, if I remember correctly. Yeah, maybe maybe when, maybe he, when he's headless remembering. It. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I'm wrong. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I, just, I know some portions, and because particularly that time, that that period of late '90s, because yeah, he Park, danced. Remember, he was like, no. Yeah. Well, yeah. regardless of Christopher Walken, the costume they had to create for that character, yeah. for the person to be in a suit with, yeah. with you know, with no head, whether it was Walken or, or, or Park, uh, sure, was it Park Ray Park, um, Ray Park, yeah, uh, yeah. So either way, that that film is my. Oh, it's, it's, my it, that's almost. Um, yeah, and it's a this is a game we haven't played in a while. Where like you know when the aliens come to Earth, what two movies do you you, do you show um but like i, I think you can make it for tim burton I, I almost, you can make a, i almost put that game together today by really the way. And i thought of that i was like oh, that's that great you could make a really solid case for sleepy hollow being a, a tim burton choice because it's so quintessential like if you need to try to explain to someone what a tim burton movie is i think you, oh, yeah. either, you either point to sleepy hollow or you point to edward scissorhands yeah I would agree. And, I, and I'd rather watch Hollow, I think. Oh, I would. Yeah, I, was amazing. I would 100% absolutely. I, I, I watched I that. Too. Yeah. It's a great right. movie. My recommendation is probably is maybe a little bit unconventional, um, but Jake mentioned it the other day in the text thread. And so I put it on and it's the Friday 13th remake. Is it 20, 2009? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Because I love Jason. Yeah. But Jason has his issues. <laughs> as a as a creeper essentially yeah. um he, he's well, people slow. forget like people when people think of jason i think they're thinking of an amalgamation yes, of yes. the friday the 13th movies i think people right. forget that, 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 that's why the line in scream is so brilliant yes. because if you ask someone this who the is yeah like you're 100 yeah. percent right like we, we have a vision of yeah. who jason is right. yeah. yeah the yeah. first if you go 30 back and rewatch minutes, those yeah. They are not great. They're not great. I love them. I love first the ones, first ones. Really oh, I, yeah, I love I the I love Kevin Bacon's the, in yeah. that. I love all oh, in the arrow through the throat. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't interrupt you. But but yeah, I, I, Jason said the reason I bring that up is because Jason is such an interesting. I, I was telling you the other day that I um, was at a, a spirit Halloween or something like that with with my girlfriend. And, you know, she loves she knows I love all the 80s slasher stuff. And she's like, oh, look at that cool poster. And it was the original Friday the 13th logo from 1980. And then Jason in the hockey mask. And I went, nope, 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 Because and she's like, why? I was like, because Jason's not the killer in Friday the 13th and he doesn't get the hockey mask. Part three and part two. He has a he's a little sack with a with a hole through the eye. And she's like, oh, my God, who am I dating? Yeah. Isn't part two kind of like doesn't it pick up like in the hospital? Isn't isn't or is that Halloween? That's Halloween. part two. Is Jason not the killer in the second Friday the 13th? He is. But he doesn't get the hockey mask till part three. Oh yes. really? He wears a he wears like a like a, like a burlap not a burlap so yeah like maybe yeah, like a burlap yeah. sack with like a hole cut through the eye mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. scarecrow kind of thing yeah and then kind it's not part yeah. three so like so the first forty minutes of the remake are kind of cliff notes of one through three it's a yes. little more brown paper bag looking than, than yeah, scarecrow. yeah 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 that's mm-hmm. fair but it is a burlap yeah. sack but the Friday Thirteenth remake does what you want uh, an updated version to do yes. in that it it amplifies jason yeah and the first 30 minutes of it are a terrific oh it's, sample. Fa- it's, a, it's a great little mini film for jason 
Yes. And then but then even beyond that, the kills throughout it are creative. They're really creative. And the girl who's swimming in the water through the pier mm-hmm. and then yeah. she gets lifted back up and yeah. hits the top of the pier. I, I, I got to take this opportunity to mention Freddy, Freddy vs. Jason, because that film, st- I still one. love lo- watching that movie. It's a I fun mean, one, just yeah. to see those two fight. I also thought the ending of that was brilliant. Like, I, I know that we had to choose a winner. And I think that Jason did win the fight. Obviously, he walks away with with uh, a spoiler alert. Uh, I'm still Freddy's head. <laughs> But dude, I'm still I, waiting for the uh, for yeah. them to finish the trilogy with Alien versus Predator versus Freddy versus Jason. That's, <laughs> that's what, well, I, I told, did I tell that. you guys the story about um, uh, I, I had Bruce Campbell uh, a couple of months ago when Evil Dead came out, and you know they were all, they, they were gonna do Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, mm-hmm. and yeah. I'd asked him what <laughs> happened to it, and he said that the two studios were each so protective of their monster that very much like how we complain about the action stars of today, not willing to take in punches that like they, they would only allow their characters to take so many punches or be hurt mm. so much. And Bruce Campbell was really the only one that's willing to be like, well, like Ash can get beat up. Like that's fine. So he was like, well, this is not going to be fair. Like my character is going to get his ass kicked and I can only hit Freddie and Jason so many times like what's then what's the point of doing then then there's no point like that i'm basically like going to be like their whipping boy i wouldn't mind a more army of darkness take where ash is kind of the slapsticky getting his ass kicked by two like like i would take that that would be kind of fun but i i imagine that's not what they were going for sorry but sorry i keep i feel like i keep because i get sean i'm so excited with your answer so i keep interrupting you well, that's it. That's all I had. I mean, I, I think yeah. that it's I'm proud of what it did. Yeah, it's not great by any stretch. No, it's not. But, you but know, it, 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 I feel like this is the ultimate uh, sign of, you know, it was a, it was a dark and rainy day on a Saturday uh, a couple of weekends back. And so my girlfriend and I were decorating the inside of her house for Halloween. And so we said, OK, let's make a fun day of it. And we just kept putting on, you know, horror. Movies. HBO Max has a great collection of horror movies. That's where I watched um, it. Yeah. And so we just kept putting them on. But our issue, and I kept putting on ones that I didn't think she would be interested in because she doesn't particularly, my girlfriend doesn't particularly like the gory wow. stuff. Mm-hmm. And we found ourselves not doing that much work because we kept sitting down watching. And one of the things that we sat down and watched because I said, okay, this is actually really good, is that for, because the it takes about 35 minutes before the title card for the Friday the 13th remake shows up. Right, right. And that that shot right before it shows up of him just sprinting and swinging his machete over yeah. is fantastic. It's so good. <laughs> I remember watching that. In high, like, I think I was in high school and that came out. It had to be. And it came out on Friday the 13th. I remember watching it. Yeah. Getting through the first like three or four kills and going what's left of, like I didn't know yeah. that that was gonna be I was like what's left in this movie how are yeah. they what's happening and <laughs> it like, sums up the whole thing with his mom like in the first 10 minutes like yeah, first 10 yeah. minutes you know can I, can I give one more uh, horror movie shout out really quick because I always love sure. to um, shout out the 2003 uh, Marcus Nespel remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre so good which I, I know it is for a lot of people it is blasphemy to 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 hail uh, a remake and look I Toby Hooper Michael Bay yeah, Michael Bay, uh, Toby Hooper's original is a stone cold masterpiece. Like you, you can never top the the raw, the rawness of of Leatherface. I can't watch original. that movie. I can't watch it. It's oh, too disturbing. Too oh, I love it's it. Too, oh, it's I love too it so disturbing. much. I love it so much. But the remake, twenty years old this year, is one of my favorite horror films of all time. It is so mm. well done. It is so beautifully shot. I know it sounds weird to say like Texas, a Texas Chainsaw remake, but it's the same cinematographer from the original film. Mm-hmm. It's mm. be- 
beautifully, gorgeously shot. They treat uh, Leatherface great. It's it's just a really, really... St- and there is one shot uh, in that film that is probably one of my top 10 favorite horror movie shots ever. And it is uh, a shot that goes through a young girl's head after, and and then out through the back of a van window and then down like into a valley. All one shot. It's Ooh, Kevin, you know what I'm talking about. What's the matter yeah. with you? That's a really it's, good movie. It's a, really it's a good great movie. movie. <laughs> well, great movie. Since, since Jake added one more, I'm going to add one more. <laughs> if, you haven't, if you haven't seen The Descent. Oh, sure. dude. I, yes. Sure. One of my favorite horror films of all time. One of the and uh, make sure you seek out the UK version, yes, not the American dude. version, because they changed the ending in the American. I literally version. was about to put it on for Adrian, and then I went, "Oh yeah. no, this is the American version. We can't do that." Yeah. And, but you can't uh, find the UK version. This is a, this is a testament to. I was going to say, I wonder right behind Kevin. This is right behind Kevin. Physical copies of things. Keep yeah, your physical yeah. copies of things because you can't find the UK version anywhere. And that movie is a masterclass in claustrophobic. Oh, yes, it, it's the closest genuinely. our generation will get to the first Alien. Brilliant. Ooh, I don't like claustrophobia. Is that I, Neil Marshall? Who directed Bomb that camp? movie? No, 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 someone. I'll double check it. Anyways, <laughs> please do. All right. So what what one film would you guys put on? Or you could uh, cheat like us and name like 18 different movies or spooky season. Head to the comments in our YouTube channel uh, while you're down there. Please give us a like and a subscribe. We are growing the channel little by little. Tell friends uh, who love movies to come over and watch Real Blend uh, for our very fun interviews and fun conversations like this. In the meantime, we will be back with another full episode next week. You can follow us during the week at Jake's takes at Kevin McCarthy TV at Sean underscore O'Connell at Gabe Kovach. And the show is at Real Blend. Kevin, I imagine you're going to have a lot of fun this week with the Speaker of the House debate still going on. <laughs> your your mentions are probably in a lot of a lot of hot water. Um, yeah, it's a lot of opportunities could... to mention Oppenheimer, though. Like someone the other day was telling me, like, why did you vote? why did you take so long to vote no on something? I was like, well, I was watching Oppenheimer eight times. <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I haven't been in the Capitol to make decisions. I like yeah. when when you take a word from their thing and like, <laughs> yeah, did you mean Mean Girls fight from yeah, yeah. With Tina Fey so, and someone Lizzie told Lohan? me I was doing a really bad job once, and I I think I wrote back like this paragraph long thing about Steve Jobs and how Danny Boyle shot sixteen million. <laughs> 35 millimeter and digital and i said listen if you mentioned jobs i have to mention <laughs> and like it was like this paragraph long thing of like but my favorite like what i really hope is that there are people that even after you respond that way don't re- still don't realize that you're not and they just think oh, that it's the speaker down. of the house responding about steve jobs and you're probably you're you're probably getting him votes you're getting him votes with you he's like he's got great taste in movies that actually (laughs) happened someone responded back i I think i said something about like watching it was like some movie i'd seen multiple times and the person was like exactly you're not doing your job i'm like (laughs) (laughs) you know who's tweeted me multiple times is deborah messing i said that didn't didn't i tell you guys deborah messing Always respond to her and say, I love you. And along came Polly. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. We'll be back next week. Uh, is so good in that. This might be the last time that we can say. Pay, pay your, your artists. Pay your actors, please. We want to get Definitely back to work. pay your actors and artists. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.